I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. If you are using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, and you're welcome to do that, I think you're even welcome to take it home with you if you like. Uh, It is on page 926, so if you're using that Bible, you can turn to that page. We're beginning today a three-week series on the idea of missions and the responsibility we have as a local church to participate in what God is doing around the world. My name is Mark Fowles. I actually teach missions over at Bob Jones University. Trent asked me to be part of this series, and I'm very happy To do so, I'm going to speak today on the topic of proclaiming the Word of God, how proclamation is really a priority for all of us, and especially for those who are serving as missionaries in parts far away. Trent will follow next week to talk about the next step in these milestones, which is disciple-making after the gospel's been proclaimed and people have believed. Then we want to make disciples as Jesus showed us and as he taught us and and commanded us even to make disciples and how that works within the sphere of of, of missionary work, uh, discipleship, and then church planting. And then the third week, Jonathan Farmer, our mission partner, whom we heard from last week, will come and show us how all this eventuates in a great heavenly feast when people from all uh, languages, tribes, and nations come together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's where we're heading. heading. Today we're starting in Acts chapter 17, and I invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13. We'll read beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. The Scripture says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city, he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way You are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Oropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. As we think about this passage and recognize that Paul, the apostle, sent primarily to minister to Gentile people, is proclaiming here a message to a, what can only be thought of as a hostile audience. We see in this something of the modern situation of our mission partners in the gospel in faraway places that are quite different from where they come from. Paul, although he was raised in a Gentile city, Tarsus, he grew up in Jerusalem. He was a trained Jewish rabbi. He was so ardent in his Jewish faith, he confesses that he was a Pharisee, even the son of a Pharisee, and he was absolutely committed to Judaism. And now here he is, in Athens, a very Greek city with a long history of Greek philosophy and uh, Greek military ventures. And he is now talking to a group of philosophers. In fact, the text identifies them as a mix of Epicureans and Stoics. And Paul is trying to communicate Bible truth to them in a way that they will understand and yet in a way that is faithful to the truth as God has revealed it. This is exactly what our mission partners must do. We heard last week from Jonathan Farmer as he ministers in Indonesia to the Riau Malayo people who speak um, a dialect, the, the Malayo dialect, as well as the Indonesian uh, main language. And Jonathan and his family are learning to speak or have learned to speak that language and dialect, and they're ministering to Muslim people who have a background and history and religion and culture that is very, very different than ours. Uh, I saw this morning, um, Brooke Ilsley is with us, and she is uh, here just for a short time before going back to Cambodia, another of our mission partners. Cambodia, with its massive uh, Theravada Buddhism and its 
um, uh, Southeast Asian culture and different foods and different languages. In fact, she's going back to start school. She's been uh, uh, teaching um, Jeremy Farmer's children for the last number of years, but she's also learned Khmer and she's ministering there in that town where they live and ministering to the Cambodian people in ways that many of us would not recognize with the different customs and the different traditions and the different lifestyles and all these things. And Paul gives us a beautiful example of how that works. Here he is in a different place. He's speaking a language they all understand. He's speaking Greek. So he doesn't have quite as many barriers to go through as, say, the farmers or Brooke over in Cambodia. And yet he shows us a pattern. But this is not just an issue for our mission partners. This is an issue for us. Because in case you haven't noticed, the world around us is changing very quickly, right? And so we have choices to make. We can curse the darkness. We can complain and grumble. We can watch the news, and probably you do. Some of you at least do what I do. My wife says sometimes I'll be sitting in a room alone watching a news broadcast, and she says, who are you talking to? I'm, I'm responding to what's being said in the news. Somebody has to say, you know, yeah, okay, you, you get that. I'm one of those guys. It is very easy to do that. It is very easy to feel overwhelmed by the changes in our society, by the things that are culturally acceptable, to the point where now, if you don't claim that the emperor has clothes, you're evil. Right? That's where we are. And, um, and we can withdraw, and we can be smug, and we can um, wish for a better time. But this is the time and the place where God has put us. And reaching your neighbor and your friends at work and reaching the people in your family who don't not yet know Christ is just as important as reaching the Rio Malayo or reaching Cambodians. And we are the people God has given to Greenville and its surrounding region to do just that. So it is important for us to understand what it looks like to communicate, to proclaim to people in different environments, different from us, what it means to follow Christ. Now, on one hand, there are those who say our primary response should be just to show them a real Christian life, to, to experience Christ before them in ways that gives them an appetite to want to follow him as well, and that is certainly true. We should never minimize the power of a well-lived life. But it's more than that. There has been a great deal of discussion in recent years in evangelicalism about the balance between our Christian testimony and serving people in holistic ways and our proclamation and the value of actually stating this is what is true, this is what God has communicated. This passage shows us that Paul had a real priority for proclamation and throughout the New Testament you see this over and over again. We really do not have the option, biblically, of just smiling and living a good life, we have to follow that up with proclamation. But sometimes it can feel overwhelming, right? 
So let's examine together this passage, think about what Paul experienced. The intro there, in, uh, beginning in verse 13 through verse 16, really shows us that Paul was now in the middle of his second missionary journey. He had spoken the word in Thessalonica with some remarkably good results. People were converted, but it angered uh, some of his antagonists, and they ran him out of town. In fact, when he went to Berea, where others also believed, there were a number of disciples that followed Jesus in Berea, but the Jews from Thessalonica followed him there and stirred up trouble, and uh, the brothers said, Paul, you really need to get out of town. So they put him on a boat, and he went by sea down to Athens. That's the end, or that's the passage, verses 13 through 15. And then in verse 16, it tells us that he was waiting for Timothy and Silas at Athens. So Paul apparently, we know from the book of Acts that he preferred to work in teams. He preferred to have co-workers around him. And so he was apparently not necessarily, he had not originally targeted Athens as a city where he wanted to uh, preach and make disciples and start a church. So he was waiting. And it says in verse 16, while he was waiting, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul looked around and he said, yuck. Paul looked around and everywhere he looked, he saw idolatry. I've been to parts of the world where you can hardly walk without tripping over somebody's altar or somebody's little shrine, literally everywhere. It is that way in parts of Cambodia. It's certainly that way, at least in um, Bali in Indonesia, uh, among the, um, the, the, the uh, Indonesian Hindus. But places where you have so much idolatry, it's just, it gives you a a feeling of being out of place. It gives you a feeling of being irritated. And maybe that's how we feel sometimes when we're interacting with people who don't know Christ. There's so much junk, we just don't even know where to begin. But Paul is not described here as just being put out. He's not described here as just being a little bit out of sorts with the culture. He's described as being provoked. The word that's used there is the word we use in English, uh, the word paroxysm. It's not a word we use a lot, but a paroxysm is where you kind of just get overwhelmed. You almost have a fit. You almost, you're, you're just so irritated, you just can't stand it. And maybe it manifests itself even physically in some ways. And interestingly, follow with me, in the Old Testament that was translated into Greek, we call it the Septuagint. The Old Testament translation for the Jewish people who read Greek, it uses that word that is used here about Paul being provoked. It uses that word a number of times to describe God's reaction to idolatry. It says that he was angry or he burned with anger. It says he was provoked to anger. It says he was jealous with anger. So what Paul is experiencing is the very kind of revulsion with idolatry, with wickedness, with wrong thinking that God himself would be repulsed by. So we have, we have an issue here. 
Some of us, we get culturally upset with the things around us. It just doesn't sit with us. We just don't like it. We're just, we're just um, you know, we're just not used to some of the things we see, and, and, and it just doesn't set well with us. And so we're, we're repulsed. But that's not really the idea here. And some of us, we get so accustomed to it, it's just like, yeah, this is life. It is what it is. And somewhere in between those, Paul was genuinely spiritually moved. His spirit was provoked. He's having a godlike reaction to this. And so what does he do with that godlike reaction? It says in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. In the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there, he reasoned. In verse 18, there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him. That's a different word. And um, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, for he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So you have three different verbs there. He is uh, reasoning. That's, that's a dialogue. That's uh, even possibly a debate. It's back and forth. It's making your argument. And sometimes that's exactly the appropriate way that we deal with people who have false ideas or false understanding, or they proclaim things that are completely contrary to biblical truth. We reason with them. We show them. We explain to them that their reasoning is faulting. faulting. Other times, Paul conversed. That's a little bit lighter word. The word literally is to kind of throw together. You're tossing it up. You're you're having a, a conversation with your coworkers around the lunch table. You're, you're at a family gathering, and you're, you're, you're just sharing ideas about what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what, is, uh, what brings hope. And then the third word, to preach, is actually the word to gospelize, to evangelize. So Paul was not necessarily standing on a soapbox and preaching, but in all of these ways, he is proclaiming truth. That's the point. So sometimes when we use the word proclaim, we think of a herald. We think of this. But proclaiming can simply be standing at the back fence talking to your neighbor. Proclaiming can be sitting at Starbucks and sharing your faith in a, in a casual way with people that you've, you've come to know. Uh, proclaiming can be evangelizing, sharing the gospel, maybe giving a gospel track or having a gospel conversation, or reading the Bible together with someone and showing them what Jesus has actually said. So Paul did all of these things. And then as we go on, we see not only his consternation with the culture and how he responds to that culture, but we see he's actually brought up to Mars Hill. Beginning in verse 22, we have that conversation. Uh, Going back to verse um, verse uh, 19, they want to know about this strange teaching. And uh, in verse 20, they say, you bring some strange things to our ears. So what does all this mean? And then Luke sort of interjects a comment, uh, an explanatory comment. He says, now all the Athenians and foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's because they didn't have Netflix. So they had to find something to entertain them, right? What do you do? So they go up to the Oropagus, which the Oropagus, as I understand, was somewhere between a, a place where rules were made. It's sort of like City Hall, 
but it's also kind of like the Elks Club or the Rotary Club. It's just a place you go. It's a civic location. It's where people hung out. And so the leading people would hang out there and try to talk about something new they'd heard. So Paul is brought up there. By the way, notice all the way back in uh, verse 18, they referred to him as a babbler. That was not a compliment. Babbler is a word that literally means a seed picker. You know, a bird goes around and picks up various seeds. And the idea of a babbler, the way this word was used in uh, that period of Greek, is that it describes someone who really had no original thought. He heard this, and he heard this, and he heard that, and then he came and he, and he told you, this is, this is what I think. Right? You have a relative like that. Right? We all do. They can speak almost endlessly and say absolutely nothing. Right? Um, and that's what they were accusing Paul of, being a babbler. So Paul, Paul could have gotten offended. He could have said, I absolutely am going nowhere with you. I don't have anything to do with you people. I have nothing to say to you. He could have done that. We can do that. But that's not what he did. He said, hey, you want me to explain the gospel? I'm all about explaining the gospel. Let's go. And so there they are, verse 22, standing in the midst of the Oropagus. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That's an interesting statement. He does not insult them. He does not compliment them. He just makes a realistic observation. I mean, they were obviously very religious. They had shrines and temples and idols and altars everywhere. And so Paul says, I see you're very religious. That's a great way to start a conversation, by the way, when the Jehovah Witness comes to your door, or the Mormon, or something else that teaches false doctrine, that Jesus is not truly the Son of God risen from the dead. We can insult them. Get away from my door. How dare you? I, I'm a real Christian. We can do that. Or we can just say, you know, I appreciate the fact that you care enough about me to come in your free time, to my door, you're, you're obviously a very religious person. Let's talk about that. And then take the opportunity to tell the truth about who Jesus is. So Paul starts out in a neutral tone, neither complimenting nor insulting, but he's, he's, he's trying to connect with his audience. It's very important to him that his audience hears what he is trying to say. You know, it's possible to say something and people don't understand. I was actually in a student uh, gathering last night over at the university for some of our new international students. And one of the people who spoke to them is a dear lady, great coworker. She's phenomenally organized, and she was organizing some events for orientation that starts tomorrow and actually starts this afternoon and goes through next week. And, uh, but she, I started counting. She used so many metaphors and idioms. You know, this is old hat. This is uh, like the cat's meow. And I'm thinking, you, you, can't, you can't even begin to understand how confusing that is to someone who's, for whom English is not their first language. And she talked really, really fast. I'm like, you know. And then she, she would stop and she'd say, 
are you getting this? And I'm thinking, no, they're not getting any of this. They're getting 5%, right? So, um, so, so Paul wants to communicate. He doesn't want to just talk. He wants to connect. And we all get this. We, we understand that different audiences, you connect in different ways, right? So you, you have to speak their language. So in Indonesia, you can speak English, but it's probably not going to get you very far. In Cambodia, you can speak English. It's not going to get you very far. So you have to speak the language. You have to, you have to use phrases and terms that resonate with them. So the point is, the better you know the people you're talking to, the better able you are to communicate to them. It's been a while ago, maybe now six years ago, seven years ago, but we did this thing here uh, where, where I, w- I was serving as an elder at the time, where the elders were going to replace the like junior church, the children's church teachers, the leaders, for the summer so they could have a whole summer off. Right? Remember that? And, and I said, yeah, this is a great idea. Not thinking that I would have to participate. <laughs> and, and, and my wife, Karen, and I, we were assigned three-year-olds for one Sunday. Three-year-olds. And I thought, how hard can this be? You know, I get paid to teach. I'm a good teacher. I get paid to teach. I don't get paid to teach three-year-olds. So I walked in, and my very first thought was, wait a minute. How can we have 20-plus three-year-olds in one church? <laughs> but at least at that point, we did. And uh, so I gave my lesson. It took me eight minutes. And I thought, well, now we've got another hour to cover. <laughs> so I gave it again. I gave the long version. And I told the story with, this, with as much enthusiasm and gusto as possible. And that took another, you know, 12 minutes. And I looked at Carrie and I said, okay, your turn. She's like. And so we went over to the cabinet and there's a beautiful cabinet that has a sign. I don't know if it's still there. It said, you know, the snacks for the children. They were gummies. Only one little packet of gummies per child, per class period. Because if you give the kid too many gummies, they're going to get all wired up, right, with the sugar, and then the parents are going to have to deal with that. Okay, by the time that service was over, I had emptied the gummy, the gummy cabinet. I'm like, kid, if you'll sit down for another five minutes, I'll give you more gummies. And, and, and that accomplished two great things. One, we survived. Two, no one ever asked us to come back again and teach the three-year-olds. It was highly effective. A lot of angry parents, I'm sure. But the point is, communicating to three-year-olds is very different than this. You've met people, right, who try to talk to a group like this as if you're three-year-olds? That's really frustrating. It's irritating. But you can tell right away that if you're trying to talk like you're talking to your spouse and talk that way to a three-year-old, it's not going to fly. It's not going to work. So Paul had to adjust. He had to adjust. In Acts 13, we see Paul giving a proclamation in a Jewish synagogue in um, uh, uh, Pisidian Antioch. And we see how he talks to Jewish people. He, knew, he understood that really well. He's Jewish. He's a rabbi. In Acts um, 14, we see Paul speaking 
to farmers in Lystra who are uh, wanting to offer sacrifices to him after he healed someone. And he talks to them in a way that's very different than a synagogue. And now he's talking to philosophers, educated men. And the way he communicates to them is going to be different. So he starts out in a neutral tone. He captures their attention. Uh, he says in verse 23, I passed. How does he know they're very religious? Well, look, I passed by. I passed along and observed in verse 23, the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So here's what I'm going to do. What you proclaim as unknown or what you worship as unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm going to explain to you. He has their attention. And he begins. And what follows beginning in verse 24 is essentially a refutation of their worldview. He, he dismantles their wrong thinking. He counters their wrong belief system with truth. Now that presupposes a few things. It presupposes that he knows their belief system. That as he's been walking around the marketplace and having conversation, he's learning. He's listening. He's even maybe taking notes. Now we know Paul's a very educated guy. Probably, realistically, one of the best educated people on the planet at that time. He was really highly educated. But in addition to that, he's observing, he's listening, he's watching, he's noting. So when he begins to have that conversation, he knows what to talk about. So let's notice what he says. He, he, he begins to counter their worldview, and he says in verse 24... The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. This God is the immense creator. He is beyond containment in a space, right? Even in the Old Testament, where God was said to dwell in the temple, he didn't actually live there. It wasn't like he was contained there. He would... He would show his presence at times in the temple, but God fills the universe. There's not a space in all the universe where God is not. He's immense. He's, He's beyond all human comprehension. So he is the immense creator. He made the world and everything in it. Notice that Paul doesn't start with a gospel verse. He doesn't start with John 3.16. Why not? Because John 3.16 isn't true. No, but because these people would not have any idea where that's coming from. They don't even know who God is. Much less who his only begotten son is. So he starts with something that they would understand. The world exists and there's a God who created it. And it's interesting that as Paul goes through this worldview discussion point by point, he actually, though he doesn't give them a, a, a verse and a reference. He didn't say, oh, no, Ezekiel says. He didn't do that because that doesn't mean anything to them. But every single thing he says to them comes directly from Old Testament reality. For example, as Paul says to them, the, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it doesn't live in temples made by man, is not served by human hands. Perhaps he was thinking of 1 Kings 8, 27, where Solomon said, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Solomon knew that God was immense, immeasurable. 
And, 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 and Paul perhaps is thinking of that reality. So Paul is not simply giving them philosophy. He's not talking politics. He is countering their wrong thinking. He is proclaiming to them truth, God's truth, as God revealed it. He may not give them the exact source, the exact verse reference and chapter and so forth, but what he's saying comes directly from Scripture. In fact, in a few of these phrases, if you go back to the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is word for word what the Old Testament text says. The next thing Paul says in verse 25 He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is not only the creator, he is the the omnipotent sustainer. Not only is he responsible for giving you life, he's responsible for sustaining life, yours and everyone else's. He is the one who is holding everything together. The, The entire universe is held together right now at this moment by the creator God. And and this God has unlimited power. There's nothing you can possibly add to him. There's nothing he needs from you. Isaiah 42 5 says, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Perhaps that's the verse Paul was thinking of. He would have been thoroughly acquainted with Old Testament scripture. And he's thinking these thoughts and communicating it to these philosophers. In verse uh, 26, he says, He made from one man every nation of, of mankind to live on the face of the earth, uh, having d- determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God is the sovereign ruler, God is in charge. You're not in charge. The Athenians literally believed that they were the ultimate creation. So whatever gods there may have been in their minds made everything. And then they looked around and said, no, not quite good enough. Let's make the Athenians. That's what they thought. That's what they told themselves. Paul says, no, not so much. God is in charge. God decides. God places people where he wills. Just as Moses uh, wrote in Deuteronomy 32.8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. This is something God did. So God is the sovereign ruler. In verse 27, uh, God does all of this that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So God is the imminent, the near, the close Savior. He's immense and immeasurable, and yet he's near. He's close by. David wrote in the Psalms, Psalm 145, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call on him in truth. And Paul knows this, and he's communicating this. God is not distant. He is not unknowable. He is not unreachable. He wants you to reach out to him. He's very near and waiting. And then he actually illustrates that point with two citations from Greek poets. He quotes first from Epimenides, who was a Cretan, from Crete, um, poet or philosopher of the 6th century BC. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Paul quotes the same philosopher uh, when he writes to Titus years and years later. And so he's demonstrating that your own philosophers they get this. They don't, they don't have it all figured out. They're not thinking of the right God. In fact, 
uh, Epimenides wrote about Zeus, uh, and Paul quotes a line from that poem, got the wrong God, but he's got the right idea. In him we live and move and have our being. So he's saying to them, you, you get this. You, you understand. And, and very interestingly, I won't take time to try to develop this, but very interestingly, what Paul is actually doing is some of what he says, all of the Stoics in the room would say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all of the Epicureans would be like, mm-hmm. And other things he says, all of the Epicureans would be like, oh, yeah, that's right, Paul, yeah. And all the Stoics would be like, hmm. And so Paul is very, very wisely, very adroitly, pulling, he's pulling them in. He's pulling them in. He's showing them who God is, what God has said. He uses another illustration, this time by a third century B.C. poet from Macedonia named Aratus, who had a poem named Phenomena. And in that poem, he wrote, we are indeed his offspring. Again, written about Zeus. But Paul says, yeah, the idea is there. It's true. So what is Paul demonstrating? I think for us, and for our mission partners working, whether it's with Muslims or with um, Buddhists or Hindus or whoever, he's showing us that there is truth to be found in different philosophies and different religions. It's, it's not all the truth. It's not undiluted truth, but there is truth. And we can use that to gain an audience, to gain a hearing, as long as we're clear as to what is truth and what is not truth. And so he continues in verse 29, and he gives them uh, one more thought about who God is. Verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God is the father. We are his offspring. We are all part of his creation, and yet he is unlike anything else. He's the unimaginable father. You can't depict him by the work of your hands. You can't carve him. You can't cast him from some metal. He is unlike all of us. Isaiah writes about that in chapter 40, about the uniqueness of God. And Paul is thinking along those thoughts. And he's, he's, he's at the same time drawing them in, communicating in terms that they will resonate with, but he's also correcting. He's also reproving. He's also telling them, you're wrong. And you cannot proclaim truth without being willing to say, you're wrong. You don't have to be ugly about it. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be snarky. You don't have to be sarcastic or anything else. But you do have to say, this is truth and this is not. And then notice, notice at the end of this passage, Paul's commitment Paul's absolute commitment to gospel clarity. Because what happens next should interest all of us. In verse 30, Paul says, the times of ignorance, everything that has come before now, God was patient with. He overlooked. It doesn't mean that God did not hold people responsible, but God has allowed things to go on in his sovereign timing Until this moment, we're now you're responsible. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
So Paul describes God as patient yet demanding. He says in verse uh, 31 that there is a time of judgment. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I didn't make a lot of comment about the Stoics and Epicureans. You can read that online. You can Google and Wikipedia. There's a lot of information. The Stoics especially wrote prolifically. And there are still, even to this day, people who would describe themselves as Stoics. But as a Greek philosophy, all Greek philosophy is dualistic. It's material and immaterial. The material world is something we suffer through. The immaterial world is whatever comes next after this life, which has to be better because we know this life is not so great. That's the mentality of Greek dualism. So both Epicureans and Stoics are Greek dualists. It's just how they dealt with that reality that was different. So to really oversimplify things, the Stoics said the way you deal with the reality of the material world is to discipline yourself to the greatest possible degree. So all of life is regimented. All of life is disciplined. You, you deny the pleasures of life to the greatest extent possible. Um, the Epicureans were essentially the opposite. It's not fair to say that they were bohemian, that they just, you know, whatever, whatever pleasures I can get. But they looked at the pleasures of life as basically the way you bear through life. So they would try to make their lives as comfortable and as pleasurable as possible. But both of them thought that the, the end goal was to just finish this life well and then experience something better in whatever kind of immaterial world might follow. The one thing that both of them would agree on very specifically was that the worst thing that could happen after you're dead is to have to come back. And so Paul, Paul who knows how they think. In fact, by the way, they started out, you know, looking at this guy like, okay, this is going to be fun. We got a babbler. I promise you, every person in the Oropagus at that moment their jaw is hanging open, and they're like, who is this guy? How does he know us so well? He, he is reading us like a book, to use an idiom. He, he knows us. And so Paul knew very well how they would feel about the idea of resurrection. Paul knows that when he gets to resurrection, he knew exactly what would happen. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They did not take Paul by surprise. So why does he go there? I mean, it's almost like if you're a public speaker, if you've ever done any public speaking, you learn to read your audience. You know when, you're, when they're with you and you know when they're not. Right? I, I teach for a living. That's what I do. I can, tell you, I can tell you which students are with me and which students are looking at me, but they are not there. <laughs> right? You, you read your audience. And, and so Paul, he's looking at these people, and they are, I'm, I'm serious, they're on the edge of their seats. They are taking this in. They're like, oh, wow. 
this is really challenging. And then he goes to judgment and repentance. And he seals it off by saying, all of this has been validated because God raised the judge from the dead. And they're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? You really are a babbler. That did not take Paul by surprise. So why does he go there? Why doesn't he stop when he's got, why doesn't he quit while he's ahead? Say, okay, let's close in prayer. Thank you very much. Why doesn't he do that? Because, because Paul is the one who writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. If you minimize the gospel, there's no salvation. Paul did not want to win an argument. Paul did not want to show that he was the smartest man in the room. Paul did not want to demonstrate that the Jews are smarter than the Greeks. Paul wanted to win people to salvation. He wanted to see people repent and convert and become disciples of Jesus Christ. He wanted people who would enjoy the fellowship with the true and living God. And that was only possible if they believed in the resurrected Christ. So he has no choice but to include that. He can't leave that out. He can't alter the gospel. Oh, he can change the way he talks to his audience. In fact, he has to change the way he talks to his audience. If he had preached them a sermon like he does in Acts 13 in the, in the synagogue, it would have been like, whew, right over their head. Wouldn't mean anything. So he has to adjust his communication, but he cannot adjust the content. He cannot make it up. He cannot just get all philosophical and say, well, you know, in the end, we're all trying for the same thing. We're all hopeful for the same outcome. No, he can't do that. Because you, if you do not believe what is true from the Bible, you have no hope. So here's hope. And so as we interact with the people around us, we proclaim truth. We tell people, this is what God has said. And part of that proclamation, if it is to bring life and hope and new birth, must include the death of Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life as the Son of God incarnate, born of a virgin. The, the, the burial of Jesus Christ to prove that he was really dead and his resurrection from the tomb. He is a living Savior. Everything he said, everything that um, God claims about him throughout the scripture is true. It's validated because he's raised from the dead. That's the gospel. We demand that of our mission partners. We, just, we don't say, look, it's, it'd be nice if sometimes you can proclaim the gospel. There's no point in sending people. There's no point in, su- point in supporting people. There's no point in partnering with people in different parts of the world unless they are able and willing to proclaim the gospel and to do that effectively in their environment. But folks, we need to be able to do that as well. That's our call also. We need to observe. We need to listen. We need to hear what the culture is saying. Not to agree with it, but to understand how to communicate to it. To to understand how we can most effectively both show them the love of God but express to them the reality of their situation apart from God and to give them the true gospel. Paul 
Paul's role and our role was to simply, clearly, and effectively communicate gospel truth. And so we have this example. Um, and in the weeks ahead, we'll see, even as this text tells us, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear from you again. And there were some who joined him and believed. You know, that's almost always the outcome. Some will mock you. And in our society today, perhaps more than ever, you stand for what is Bible truth. You proclaim that your entire hope for eternity is founded on a man who rose from the dead. And people will look at you like you're crazy. Like, you, you just missed the boat. You're, you're just off. Um, and some will say, let's talk some more. And some will believe. But at the center of it all, we give them the gospel. Because it has power to save. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful today for the example of Paul. Make us more like him. Help us as we uh, work with and through our mission partners as a church to uh, encourage and help and enable and provide for them to be able to do the same wherever they are in whatever environment. And Lord, as our world changes around us, help us to not be afraid and to not withdraw, to not be concerned when people just dismiss us as babblers, but to look for opportunities to share the only hope that this world truly has, which is Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.